So, with all of that being said, let's turn now our attention to the Word of God. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 21. Thank you, Barbara. <clears throat> Today, we're going to reach the last of our four sermons about the original Christmas hymns found in the book of Luke. And you might say to yourself, look, it's, well, it's not Christmas anymore, and why are you still doing these Christmas hymns? I don't know about you, but if a, if a store is still playing Christmas music today, I will be a little annoyed because I am so ready for it to no longer be Christmas music season. But there's a reason why I am preaching about a Christmas hymn after Christmas. I'm scheduling this intentionally because this song was sung after the birth of Christ. This is when Jesus was dedicated at the temple eight days after his birth and when he was given his legal name. This is actually the first time we ever hear the words of anyone who are actually speaking in the presence of the newborn king after his birth. So please follow along as I read starting in verse 21. It says, And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. <clears throat> and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. <clears throat> Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what, he said about, what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and, a, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to tell all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. <clears throat> Join me as we pray once more that the Lord would bless us in our desire to hear the word this morning. Father God, I thank you for all of these songs that we've considered here in the book of Luke. I pray that today as we come to this last one, that you would encourage our souls in, to have eager anticipation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, grant us today that we might hear from you. We rely upon the Spirit this morning. We acknowledge, God, that we are desperately in need of you to work in us. And so, God, we pray desperately saying, Lord, open our understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Today we're focusing on this song of Simeon. Now, so although Anna is a big part of this story, arguably just as significant in the narrative, we're going to focus more on Simeon because it's his words that are in focus today. But as always, in order to understand the song, we're going to have to know a little bit more about the background of the person who is singing. What does Luke tell us about Simeon? The answer is not very much. Verse 25 tells us, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Consider the words of Charles Spurgeon concerning this passage. He says, Short biographies which give a concise and exact account of the whole man are the best biographies. What do we care about what Simeon did, or where he was born, or where he was married, or what street he used to walk through, or what color coat he wore? We have a very concise account of his history, and that's enough. His name was Simeon. Yes, he lived in Jerusalem. Yes, the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And yes, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Beloved, that is enough of a biography that should be spoken of any of us. When it speaks of him being just, it's referring to the way that he interacted with other people. When it speaks to him being devout, it's a reference to the way he related to God. Notice that it doesn't say he was a religious person. The Pharisees were essentially professional religious people, and it says that he was not like them. No, he was not outwardly showy. He was truly just and truly devout. The exact opposite of what we actually see in the scribes and Pharisees in the New Testament. So to put it succinctly, Simeon actually loved God, and therefore he actually loved others. This means that whenever he gave to the poor, he was doing so because he was thankful for what the Lord had given him, and because he wanted the blessings that he had experienced to be experienced by others. And it means that when he prayed, he wasn't seeking to get people to look at him. He wasn't in the temple that day seeking attention. He wasn't saying, wow, no, he wasn't wanting people to say, wow, that man has such a great understanding of God. He, his doctrinal mind and his theological vocabulary are super compared to my own. Rather, he would approach God with an attitude that says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, looking for the consolation of Israel. It means that when he fasted, he was not seeking for the praise of men, but to say, God, as much as I want food, I want you in my life even more. So in this story, Simeon finally sees the object of worship in the arms of Mary and Joseph, and he sees with his own eyes what he has so desperately longed for. He sees his salvation. He sees Jesus. Now, we don't know how old Simeon was. It's impossible to know for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us, but most scholars agree this man was elderly. The reason is twofold. It says, first of all, he had been informed by the Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, it's possible, genuinely possible, that the Lord came to him when he was 10 years old and told him that, or when he was 25 years old or 50 years old, but it's also possible that this man was in the waning years of his life. Secondly, I think it probably was later in his life because he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Those do not sound like the words of a 25-year-old to me. 
In contrast to Anna, who we are told is 84 years old, we're not giving any specifics about his age, but certainly it seems that he had been waiting a very long time to see the fulfillment of the promises. But even if he had not, Israel had been waiting a very long time for the coming king. One scholar described Simeon like this, as a man who was tasked to be a watchman on the wall, and his job was watching at the temple every day. It says he would be there, watching the horizon through the night for a specific star to rise. And the watchman waited and kept his attention fixed on that horizon until finally the dawning of the star arrived. And then, when it did come, he was dismissed from his post, having successfully fulfilled his purpose. <clears throat> the theologians refer to this song as the Nunc Dimittis, which simply means now dismissed. But what star has it been that he's waiting for? He's waiting to see the Lord's Christ, the promised Messiah, the one who is the consolation of Israel. Now, isn't this amazing? Because this is exactly what Eve was waiting for after the fall. Eve hoped for this very thing, that one of her children would restore what Adam and Eve lost in the garden. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8 that Abraham rejoiced by faith to see the day of Christ. This is likely a reference to the occasion when he carried that son of his up to the hill to be sacrificed, but then he was told to stop at that last moment. And if you remember the story, that is the one time we find the, the name of God, Jehovah Jireh. Abraham refers to God as Jehovah Jireh. What does that name mean? The Lord will provide. We often sing about it in terms of earthly provisions. I don't know if you've ever had a song that sings that, that you've sung in your Christian life, or if you've prayed about it in that way. The Lord provides, and that's true of physical needs. But in the Bible, that's actually not the way the word is used. He says the Lord will provide a lamb. The Lord will provide a sacrifice And the Lord provides, not in Isaac, not in any of the other descendants. He provides in Christ. Abraham, by faith, saw Jesus' day. He rejoiced to see that day that the lamb would be sacrificed. But in his life, he didn't see it. In the Psalms of David, you can hear this emotionally honest worship as he yearns for that fulfillment of God's promises in the sending of the Messiah. Yet, In the first century, when Jesus actually did arrive, what happened? He was widely ignored, especially by the religious and political leaders, especially when he was a baby. All of the prophetic signs were being fulfilled, but they were either unintentionally overlooked or intentionally ignored. But now, this seemingly unimportant man and woman, Simeon and Anna, are briefly entering into the eternal account of Scripture because... God blessed these Old Covenant saints with a wonderful blessing to see Jesus with their eyes before they died. These two are the epitome of the kind of people that history would normally forget. But God made promises to them, and God does not forget His people. These faithful saints are standing at the precipice now of a new age. Their generation was the last that would be buried before Jesus would fulfill the law and the prophets. They have always heard law, 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 but now there is a new era dawning. Jesus speaks out of it, about this in Luke 16, 16, when he says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. They were the last who lived under the old regime. Simeon had lived his entire life looking forward to this fulfillment that all of the old covenant promises 
are found to be yes and amen in this child. That is why the first words of his song are essentially, I'm ready to die now. If you understand the words he's saying, that's actually what he means. I'm ready to die. Why is it that he's ready to die? What changed the moment he saw that baby? He has seen his salvation. Consider how amazing this part of the story is. Mary and Joseph are going into the temple for the purpose of circumcising Jesus and to officially name him. Uh, When our first son Asaph was born, we had narrowed down the name choices to two. And after he was born, we were going to select one of them after seeing him and seeing which one fit his face the best. You know what I mean if you're a parent. But the next, that day and the next day, Ashley was definitely not in any state to think about it or to name him. So we waited and we waited and every person I knew was texting me or calling me and asking, what is the name? What are you calling this fat little baby that you are holding in your arms? And we didn't know. So we found out that you're legally required within three days to name the baby in New York. So on the third day, we chose ASAP, and of course, the rest is history. That's somewhat what's going on here in this story. In those days, your name was not legally recorded until you went into the temple or the local synagogue to dedicate your child to God. But God had already told them exactly what they were going to call this child. He was to be called Jesus. When Mary first heard that she was going to have a baby, Gabriel said, you will call his name Jesus. It was no mystery to them. They just had to tell the state, as it were. The name Jesus was very, very common in those days. It was the same name as the Old Testament figure that we find translated into English as the name Joshua. And it literally means the Lord saves. Jesus is the epitome of the depiction that the Lord saves. Now, as Mary and Joseph are walking into the temple, a stranger approaches them. And we don't know exactly how this transition takes place, but when Simeon sings the words of his song, he is literally holding Jesus. It says, he took him up into his arms. Now, I kind of feel bad for Mary and Joseph because being the parents of Jesus must have been very strange and very confusing. It's not like parenting any other kid that has ever been born. And the night that he was born, a bunch of shepherds randomly show up. And if you've ever been around a woman who has just had a baby, that's not the time they want a lot of visitors, especially people they don't know at all. And all of these shepherds are so excited, they come bursting forth, searching for this baby who's lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. And then When he is eight days old, Mary takes the trek with her husband Joseph into Jerusalem, a two-mile journey that they probably walked, and they went into the temple courts. And what happens? They are met by these two elderly strangers who approach them directly, and they don't recognize the parents. They recognize the child. Now, I don't know about you, but if I took my eight-day-old baby somewhere, I'm not going to pass him off to a stranger. That just will not happen. But Simeon takes this baby into his arms, and he rejoices over him. And you can almost hear the peaceful jubilee that's in his voice. I I can imagine him trying to speak as he's speaking through tears of joy and adoration as he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Now let me ask you, are you ready to depart in peace? Are you ready to die? Now, I'm not just speaking about having your house in order. I'm not speaking about having a will. I'm not talking about your emotions or whether or not you've made peace with the idea that you're going to die. 
I'm not talking about the list of places that you wish you could go before that day comes or the things that you want to accomplish. I mean, are you ready to face God? Simeon tells us exactly why he is ready to depart in peace. Because, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He saw the salvation of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Have you found that salvation in Jesus? If not, there is nothing else in life that can prepare you for death. There is nothing else that can make you ready to stand at the judgment seat. There are many people who saw Jesus in that day and did not recognize him. There were priests performing his circumcision who did not recognize Jesus this very day. And perhaps there are some here who have heard the stories about Jesus many times. You know the facts, you know the verses, but you don't actually know him. You haven't seen him with the eyes of faith. And to you, I want to simply say this. God is merciful. Now, I don't want you to die right now, especially right now. But I know that if I died right now, right here in front of you, if I were to collapse on this stage at this moment, I know I would be ushered into the presence of God, that I would experience his mercy forever. Why? Because I'm just such a good person. Any one of you that knows me at all knows that's not true. It's not because of anything I've done. It's not because I'm a good person. It's because everything I have ever done that has caused me to earn punishment forever was placed on Jesus. And because he mercifully paid for me. Jesus bought my entrance into heaven. He purchased salvation for all of his people at the cross. He died for sinners like you and like me. And if you don't know him... I want to ask you to come to faith in Jesus Christ today. I call on you to be saved because God is not dead. Jesus is alive and he lives today to be your savior. But Simeon doesn't stop there. He doesn't talk just about his own ability to now enter into eternity with peace. He keeps going and says, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, this is a crazy thing to say if you're a Jewish person during that day. There are two kinds of people in the world in their minds. There are the Jews, and then there's everyone else. And the Jewish people are God's people. Everyone else is not. Yet he says, this salvation is not just for me, and this salvation is not just for my people. This generation is going to be the generation where the good news of the light of the glory of God spreads out beyond the nation of Israel and goes to the ends of the earth. Revelation to the Gentiles. And when he uses this word prepared, it's a very interesting word. Consider where he is. He is standing in the temple courts. What happens there? That is where they do something very specific. They prepare animals for sacrifice that would be publicly put on display as a destructive force to talk about how we can be reunited with God that day of atonement. The fact that this child is prepared in the presence of all peoples points to the reality that the cross is the focal point of all history. That is the center of his song. He says this child is being prepared for the whole world to see so that he might be displayed as the sacrifice that God has made for us. He says that the life of this baby is going to also be the glory of Israel. Let me ask the question. If you've read through the Bible reading plan this year, you should have a reasonable answer to this. What is the glory of Israel? 
as you read through the Old Testament, what is the glory of Israel? Let me give you a hint. It's never the kingdom. It's never the people. They are certainly sinful. It's always the king that is the glory of Israel, but not the earthly king. Because if you look at them, they're all messed up, even the best of them. It's not the earthly king that is the glory of Israel. No, it's not the king on the human throne, but Israel's true king, the one that they rejected time and time and time and time again. Jesus was always the glory of Israel, but now he has arrived in the flesh. All the mercies of God cannot be contained within the space of Israel. God was pleased with grace to overflow his mercy and his glory into all nations and all peoples of, all earth, of the earth. Not all people without exception, but all people without distinction are the undeserving recipients of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Now, after this short song, Simeon turns and he looks at Mary and Joseph and he begins to prophesy even more. And here's where things get really dark. Where Simeon's song was joyous, his prophecy now contains some very, very dire truths. He says to Mary in verse 34 and 35, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, there's a word here that I'd like to focus in on for a moment. It's the word rising. Now, you may not recognize this word as it's found all over the New Testament, because in English they decided to translate this as rising, but the actual word is anastasin, which literally is translated almost everywhere else as the word resurrected or resurrection. They, he is going to be appointed for the, the fall or the destruction of and the resurrection of many in Israel. He has come to bring resurrection. He has come to raise his people up. But not all people will experience this. To those who do not turn to him in faith, he is going to be the cause for their ultimate demise. He has come for the rising and the falling. Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 a stumbling block for the Jews. Jesus loved him, lived among these people, many of whom did not recognize him. They refused to believe in him. They considered it utter foolishness. And for that, those who did not believe were condemned. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That rising and that falling, well, it's not limited to Nicodemus' time, the time of Christ. It continues to this day. All who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be raised to newness of life. And all those who reject him, all those who run from him, they will remain under judgment. Simeon tells Mary that this baby is going to be a sign that is opposed. Um, not trying to be political here, but this past couple of years, past maybe half decade or so, there's been a lot of signs out in people's yards for different politicians, whoever you prefer. And you might notice that many times I have seen there are signs that are opposed. They are spray-painted on. They are broken. They are removed. Why? Because somebody doesn't like the message of the sign. In this case, Simeon says there is a sign. This baby is going to point to something specific, and he is going to be opposed. His message, his sermons, his preaching, it is going to be rejected. They will not listen to what he has to say. He is going to be a sign that is opposed. And Jesus was pointing to what? To himself as the way of salvation. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. And that is the sign that is opposed. To that sign, there were many, and there still are many to this day, who continue to stand opposed. Simeon was right. Jesus was hated by many, so much to the point that they killed him at the cross. God knows who we are. He knows better than we do who we are. He knows our inmost being. He does not look on the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. In second, I'm sorry, John chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, it says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Even while he was walking around on this earth, Jesus didn't need you to tell him what you were all about. He didn't need you to tell him your innermost being. He knew you better than you know you. But by arriving here on earth, Jesus was going to make evident the true motives of the hearts of many. Now, I believe that this prophecy is particularly focused on the religious elites of Israel who claimed to love God, but when He came in the flesh, their hatred could not be contained. They claimed to serve the Lord with their many works, but what they truly wanted was glory for themselves. By living a perfect life and preaching a powerful gospel and performing miraculous signs and dying and rising on the third day, Jesus was unparalleled by anyone else in human history. Those who should have embraced the Son of God instead raged against Him. Simeon also told Mary of what was to come for her, that she would be pierced through her very soul, it says. I believe this is to signify that she was going to experience great agony and sorrow when she was at the foot of the cross, watching Jesus, her son, be executed. She saw things that no mother should ever have to see. So, brothers and sisters, what does this mean for us? In what way should we apply this text? Now, even though the text doesn't contain any commands, I do think it delivers some very potent and pertinent applications. We're just going to focus in on two of them today. First, I want to talk about hope. Now, normally when I say the word hope, I tell you, I'm not using the word like it's being used in the modern English because now we're talking about something different than the Bible is using. But today, I am referring to our modern definition of hope. What is it that you want in life? What are you wishing to happen in 2022 and beyond? What is on your bucket list? What are your dreams? What are your aspirations? What are those things that you are so hungry for that you think about them before you go to sleep and as soon as you wake up? Those things say a lot about you. In this story, we encountered a man that we should all learn from. All that this man wanted before he could die was to see Jesus. For those of us who have seen Jesus with the eyes of faith, we're called to live for Him. Now, we have a tendency to create idols for ourselves. Some of them are obvious, and some of them are obvious just to other people and not to ourselves. But most of the time, we're good at hiding idols. What idols do is they, they lie to us, and they give us false hope. They make us promises that they cannot keep, and ultimately, they always disappoint us. Consider some of the idols that sneak up on you. Examining your hopes is one of the best ways to identify your idols. If your primary hope is just in that next fix of entertainment, like Gideon was speaking about today, you're just looking forward to that slate of movies that's coming out in theaters this coming year, then you're not going to be satisfied. And most likely you're going to sin by letting your guard down and being desensitized to the sin that's on the screen and ingesting it and normalizing it in your own life. Um, as Gideon was speaking, I was convicted this morning, I don't know if you were, but I think I need to make some changes in the way that I bring in entertainment like this. If your primary hope is to have a perfect family, 
And you're always going to be disappointed when they don't look like your ideal of what a family is. You're probably going to be moved to sinful anger with your kids instead of lovingly correcting them and shepherding them and recognizing that they are sinners. You're going to be sinfully angry with your spouse when they don't live up to your expectations and they do live up to their own sinful nature. If your primary hope is in money, then you're just never going to have enough and you're going to lower your standards in order to get more and you're going to be sinfully greedy and you're going to be selfish and you're going to be thinking that your money is actually all something that belongs to you and not to God and then your money is going to ultimately disappoint. And if your primary hope is in a politician or in a political party, then you're going to be disappointed. If this is your idol, then you're going to sacrifice kindness and graciousness and gentleness and humility for the sake of proving your own point or trying to get someone else to vote the way that you want. And if your hope is found in temporary comfort, then you're going to go out of your way to eliminate any inconvenience and any difficulty from your life. And usually the first thing to go is evangelism because those awkward conversations are just so uncomfortable and you don't have the ability to stand it any longer. And if your hope is in your appearance, then the sand of time is your enemy because, let's face it, we all get older. And if your hope is your health or a long life, I hate to break it to you, eventually we are all going to die. And if you place your hope in these things, you're going to have your hope fail you again and again and again. Let me just give another example. If I haven't given enough, many of you are Mets fans. And I don't have to tell you about disappointment. But let me just ask the question, what if, what if, what if they win in 2022? And, and 2023 and 2024, and for five years straight, they become a dynasty and win every single game. Not just the championships, but every game. Let's just say they become the greatest team of all time. Well, guess what? That's not going to satisfy you. Because beyond the fact that you're going to want a sixth year, they're actually eventually going to lose. And regardless, they're never going to let you exist They aren't playing the game for you. They say that they are, but they're playing for a paycheck. They're playing for the fame. They're playing to get money. That hope is going to fail you. That idol will not satisfy. The idol that becomes more noticeable on this day than any other is the idol of our bodies. Either we err on the side of gluttony and carelessness, or we err on the side of the selfie culture and the pursuit of a perfect self-image. Both McDonald's and Instagram stand as resounding evidence that our tendency is to fall in one of these two ways. We either worship our craving or we worship our reflection in the mirror. But if your idol is your appearance, then you're never going to be satisfied. And most of us in this room, it's, let's face it, it's all downhill from here. And even if you do get that six-pack or you can lift that weight or you can reach your goal... You can have that New Year's resolution, you can run that mile or run that marathon, eventually that's going to end. And there will come a day when you can't do any of those things. You'll be lying on a bed all day. As my friend Peter Nicotra would always say, God brings you into the world helpless and humbled, and he takes you out of this world helpless and humbled. There are hundreds of idols that I have not mentioned today. Maybe you got a new idol under your tree yesterday. We hide these things in our hearts, and I pray that God would reveal them to us as I continue preaching this morning. Why? Because these false gods, these false hopes, they don't satisfy you in any way. On the other hand, if your hope is in Christ, the consolation of Israel, 
If your hope is on the Savior, you're never going to be put to shame. You will never be disappointed. In fact, if your desire is to know him more and you realize your calling as a Christian is to know him and love him more, then you will begin to live in such a way that you reflect him more. If your hope is in Jesus, you're going to be just towards those that you come into contact with, just like Simeon was. And, it, and you'll treat people that you don't enjoy, the people that you don't agree with, the people on the other side of the political divide, the people on the other side of every ideological bent, you are going to treat those people with respect and kindness. Why? Because you are going to see beyond the outward issues and see that people's greatest need is not to think like you about that stuff, but to experience Jesus himself. If your deepest desires revolve around Jesus, then even when the world comes crashing down around you, you're going to be the one standing on solid ground. Are your hopes and desires an indication that you are seeking after the Lord? Or do your hopes reveal to you an idol that needs to be confronted and destroyed? The second application that I think we need to hear from the text today is about eager anticipation. Now, I wonder how many people Simeon told when the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not die before seeing the Lord's Christ. I mean, we don't know how long he knew this to be true, but I imagine if God told me that, I would want to share it with people. And if God told Simeon this and he did share it with people, my thinking is they probably laughed at him. They probably didn't think much of it. Okay, sure, 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 sure. We've been waiting for how many years? God hasn't even given us any new information for 400 years, and you think God's going to just send his Messiah so that you can see him? Okay, Simeon, take a nap. Yet, whether people thought he was ridiculous or crazy or he kept it to himself, maybe he just kept it inside waiting day after day. Is this the Lord? Will he come today? Either way, we know this. He was daily eagerly waiting. His heart was drowning in anticipation that he would see the face of his king. Brothers and sisters, have you forgotten that for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see him face to face? This eager anticipation that Simeon felt to see that Messiah in the temple, that should be something that fills us every day. That we would be filled with love for the return of the Lord. That we would be filled with joy. That we will either see him when he comes back or when we close our eyes in death. The New Testament is filled with references that we should have this kind of anticipation. Let me just share with you a few of them. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting. We're anticipating. Why? Because I don't really belong here. I belong there with Him. 1 Corinthians 1.7 says, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You eagerly await. You eagerly await, Corinthians. This is the worst church in the New Testament. These people are awful. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, they get so many things wrong. But what do they get right? They were eagerly anticipating the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Even the grass and the cows and the water in the ocean is screaming out, Lord, come back. Let us not forget that the king is on his throne. He has not forgotten his children. He is ruling. He is reigning right now. And one day, one day, we will all stand before him. And those who know him will be rejoicing as we see him face to face, just like Simeon did. One day, we're going to stand before him. And instead of holding 
him in our arms, he'll hold us in his arms. One way to diagnose your walk with the Lord is to consider if you crave the presence of the Lord at all. One of the ways that I see my love of the Lord dimming most quickly on those times when I am not walking well with him is that my passion, my craving fails for him. I just have no appetite for the Lord. Do you eagerly anticipate the day when you stand before him? Do you seek to encounter his presence every day? Do you have a heart of Simeon when you wake up in the morning that you can't wait to see the consolation that is found in Christ? So what should we do? Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, submitting our hopes and our dreams and our bucket lists and our goals and our New Year's resolutions and everything else to him because he's worthy. One really good way to do that is to develop an appetite for the word. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but when I had COVID, I could not taste anything. And when I can't taste anything, I kind of think to myself, well, then what's the point of eating? Right? Like, I eat because I enjoy eating, obviously. I like the taste of food. Yet when I had COVID, if I could taste anything, it tasted like the worst thing I've ever had in, in, in the world. And I, I just didn't want it anymore. I would want to spit it out. But... I still ate food because even though I didn't feel like it, I needed sustenance. If you have been out of practice of reading the Bible, coming to the Word can be difficult. It can be a challenge. It can be hard because you have lost your appetite entirely. And one of the ways to develop that appetite is to taste and see that He is good, to dig into the Word together. Now, I want to share with you a few ways that I'm going to help us walk through that this year. As you go through this daily Bible reading plan, you're going to see that there are various weeks that show up here. And what I'm going to try to do is most weeks this year, you're going to receive an email that will give you just a couple of things to think about that will tell you, hey, when you're reading this chapter, here's what I want you to see. Just a couple of things. I want you to go beyond that if you can. But at the very least, I will give you pointers. So even if you come to it and you say, look, I don't have any idea what Ezra chapter 3 is about, I want to help you. And so you can develop, you can grow in your understanding of the Word, and you develop more and more that taste, that sense of taste for the Word. You, you begin to see that God is good and that He is worthy. And so I ask that this year that we would commit ourselves to eager anticipating, eagerly anticipating the Lord, not just in the future, not just at His return, but every day when we wake up. And like Simeon walked into the temple, we walk into our, our room we open the word, and we explore what God has given to us to explore. Simeon had to go somewhere. He had to see a physical person. Jesus has given us himself in the word. Let's explore every single day. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would help us to love you and to anticipate you and to hope in you. And God, I pray that you would help us even today to develop more and more of a taste for the word. God, I thank you for this message from Simeon as he sang these beautiful words that he saw his salvation in Jesus Christ. If there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, I pray that they would see your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.